Middle East on the brink, North Korea on the brink, Iran increasing its aggression, elections in Taiwan. Look, there's a lot of global instability as we ourselves plunge into primary season. How have you sheltered your savings and investments from potential major setbacks to the economy? You think it can happen here? It can happen here, but it's not too late to diversify an old IRA or 401k into gold. And Birch Gold Group can help you with that. Birch Gold is the only gold company I trust. As opposed to many other investments, Gold thrives in times of uncertainty. It is an important part of diversifying your savings. Now listen, here's how Birch Gold can help make it a part of yours. Birch Gold will help you convert an existing IRA or 401k into a tax-sheltered IRA in gold. And it doesn't cost you a penny out of pocket. You want to learn more? Just text SAVAGE to 989898 for a free info kit. S-A-V-A-G-E, text it to 989898 and you get a free info kit. It costs you nothing. Just text SAVAGE to 989898. With an A-plus rating with the Better Business Bureau, countless five-star reviews, and thousands of happy customers, I encourage you to arm yourself with the knowledge of diversification through precious metals. Protect yourself. Text SAVAGE to 989898 and claim your free info kit. Protect your savings with gold. Do it now. Text SAVAGE to 989-898. Thank you very much. Birch Gold is the only gold company I trust. Text SAVAGE to 989-898. Warning, the Savage Nation contains adult language, adult content, psychological nudity. Listener discretion is advised. And now, the world's most exciting podcast, The Savage Nation, home of borders, language, culture, and here he is, New York Times best-selling author and National Radio Hall of Fame inductee, Michael Savage. Welcome to the July 4th Independence Day show. And you know, we really have a lot to celebrate today. And you have to thank Donald Trump for changing the Supreme Court to a fair body instead of a twisted sister body of the Ruth Bader Ginsburg type, because affirmative racism was overthrown. Yes, that's all it was. Affirmative racism was out to get the white male, the straight white male in particular. And that's why the university have turned into what they are today nightmarish, anti-American, anti-male, anti-family, anti-Christian cesspools. Well, I don't know if you know it, but affirmative racism was struck down by the Supreme Court. And as I said on Twitter, straight white males can apply again. And that means not just universities. That means the military. That means everywhere. Maybe we'll see America reemerge again. So we have for you today a couple of special treats. One is my readings from the death of the white male, the case against affirmative action, do a piece of that. And then we found some golden oldies for you on the July 4th holiday that I think you're going to love. And we put the two of them together for you for this spectacular July 4th podcast. Enjoy it over the next three days. I'm Michael Savage. Thank you for listening. So I thought of all the things I could do for you today. It's for you, not for me. I'm not making any money. I'm not asking you to send me, you know, nickels or dimes. It's not like put the quarter in the machine to keep the monkey talking. So what am I doing it for? What the hell difference does it make? You know, I ask myself that repeatedly. What difference does it make? 
I don't know. You'll have to ask yourself. Thoughts have power. Everything begins with a thought. Think about it. everything begins with a thought. So maybe it has meaning. Maybe the pebbles that I throw into the pond and send out ripples to the world have had effects. But, you know, I want to go back in time. So here's what I decided I want to talk about with you today, the death of the white male. And I'll tell you why. Copyright 1991 and 2003. That's not when I wrote this. I predicted this coming earlier than that. This was originally written in October 1997. Interesting, isn't it? 1997? No, that's not when it was written. That's when I did the Prop 209 rally in front of the federal building, when I appeared in an armored car. Believe me, I've done some great things in the terms of performance art. And we've held a line for a while, but frankly, the uh, lines have been breached. The degenerate, radical, criminal left has breached our lines, and I don't know that we could ever recover the nation. I hate to be this depressing about it, but look, what do you want to do? BSU. I'm not going to begin today because I didn't do it yesterday. I think I'm going to start. I, I, I wrote this in the 70s. I know when I wrote it. I was up in the Sierra Nevada mountains. I had a young family, two young kids. Uh, I had just gotten my PhD, and they wouldn't hire me, even though it was one of the highest degrees you can get at the time from one of the great American research universities with original work and my master's thesis have been published as a book. Sterling, sterling uh, achievements. Instead, they hired morons, idiots, anyone but white males. As long as the color of your skin was right. So here it is, November 1977, Sierra Nevada mountains. I remember being with the kids and I wrote this long poem and it, it's not really more than I wouldn't read it to you. It's pretty good. But I want to read something in this book. Now, you're going to say, how can I get the book? I don't know right now. I'll probably put it on Kindle so it's not lost in time. If I go, it goes on Kindle, I, I preserve the copyright and you can buy it for a buck or whatever. So I um, was talking about the hiring practices in 1980s, in the 80s, where firemen and police, Boston, New York, San Francisco at first, had gone beyond federal court-ordered quota systems in hiring only minorities and women, even women who couldn't pick up a hose, even women who couldn't fire a pistol became a police chief in San Francisco. She could not pass the pistol exam. Women who couldn't pick up a hose with water and it became fire chiefs because it was a very good civil service job for the brigades. So I was fighting against affirmative action because they were only giving jobs to minorities and I was not considered a minority. So I sent a notice of hiring from the California State University system. At the time, this was in the, in the early 80s, I think, to a gentleman in England who had supported my research. He's passed away since. This is a man in a nation known for, known for its tolerance, a man who had fought Hitler, a man known for his left-wing social activism, a good, solid British liberal, English liberal of the old school, I sent him the hiring form from Cal State University. Here's what he said, one paragraph about an affirmative action form. Michael, I thought it might perhaps be an entry form to Dachau. Certainly the questions would have been no more precise than these. I can understand the turmoil and disgust that you must feel at this kind of institutional behavior. 
It really strikes me as being adjunct activities of a totalitarian rather than a democratic society, unquote. That was from a gentleman, a lifetime left-wing activist in England who fought Hitler. And you said it can't happen here. You said it couldn't happen again. You said it won't happen again. Beria, the sadistic chief of police, secret police for Joseph Stalin said, show me the man and I'll show you the crime. Got any goosebumps yet? Show me the man and I'll show you the crime. This is now Biden's legacy. This is Biden's legacy. Show me the man and I'll show you the crime. And it's only just begun. They've got 18 months left to do anything they want to anyone in this country. So affirmative action deterred me from getting what I wanted and what I deserved. I just wanted to be a college professor and teach. I don't know what I was going to teach ethnobotany, ethnomedicine. I figured I'd have a pleasant life. And um, luckily for me, it didn't work out that way. I want you to think about that. You know, there's a Chinese proverb, what is good luck, what is bad luck? Well, for, for my sake and yours, it was quite good luck that the, the academies rejected me. Look, look at the filth they have in the universities today, except in the very hard sciences. Look at the garbage and the fake departments they've created. Fake departments, whole fake departments. Racism departments. Uh, I never saw anything like it. And prof full professor. They give seminars. It's unbelievable. I go to conferences. We have 18 months left for the Biden gang to destroy every remnant of America. So let me read this. I'm up in the, in the I almost said the Catskill Mountains of the Sierra Nevada with the kids, young children, two young kids. They're all grown now, both grown. 1977, my God. So here's a young guy, immigrant son, does everything right, works all his jobs, two jobs, three jobs, gets his PhD after two master's degrees. His master's is published in a major Harvard University science journal, and he doesn't get hired because he's not black, Hispanic, at the time, a gay or a woman, or and they didn't even know what a transsexual was then. Those were the designated people of choice. So basically, I wrote this poem. And, and the most important part in here is without quality, there is no equality. Was I wrong? Mark those words down. Without quality, there is no equality. Who wrote that? Me. You know, some of these things should live for a long time. So let me begin. I, I wrote this on a snowy night in uh, the Sierra, up in the Sierra Nevadas. I used to go there a lot. I loved it. The death of the white male. White male professors and legalistic hypocrites declaring an end to injustices call for the death of their kind, excluding themselves to, quote, make up for generations of sad injustices. We declare the hiring by racial quota a just service. After all, their jobs are made for life, so why not give it the expense of those who prove by excellence the noose of unemployment at the end of the long, dark tunnel of trial? The noose of unemployment at the end of the long, dark tunnel of trial. But why not give our fashionable minorities the jobs of those at top? They who cry for justice. Of course, they now have done that. That's why the universities have melted down into cesspools of hate. Let the braying sheep throw their own skins to the stalking hungry, giving all an equal opportunity. I am an equal opportunity employee, the son of Benjamin, a small shopkeeper, the grandson of Samuel, a serf. Do I enslave the Hispanics or did they do the enslaving here in the Americas? 
Have you forgotten history, my dear white male friends? Our Cortez and De Soto <clears throat> mere automobile insignias. Native American Indians of the Southern Hemisphere shot from cannons, not by my ancestors, perhaps yours in Brazil. The ears of forest-dwelling children of God cut off in Russia by axe-wielding peasants with potato faces. Natives of the Amazon similarly maimed by Portuguese adventurers. I am the smallest minority in America. An individual man who aligns himself with no group, calls himself by no race, but strives always for excellence. I am an equal opportunity employee, and I stand behind no false systems, braying for a chance in mass production. America, we make machines which break too readily, all subject to recall, applying the same system to humans, to people who are instructed to desire mass-produced equality based on a certain number of colors, evenly arranged on totalitarian charts in Washington and every state capital, in every mayor's office, in every school, at every job site, a nice orderly arrangement of colors like so many poppy red refrigerators and so many white ones and so many black ones and so many brown ones. We demand the production of equality. Our sense of assembly line consciousness demands such even handedness at the expense of quality. Listen, my screaming friends, you of the race and you who no longer have the right to cop to your grandfather's serfdom because you've got the same access to tools that I have. Listen, friends, here's a secret. Without quality, there is no equality. In the world of man, when someone goes up, another goes down. By being shut out, and if there are only a certain number of slots created by the girls who run the ship, then take your chances alongside me without declaring yourself the oppressed. Yes, I appeal to your manliness, to your sense of pride, because what you get to easily, you won't enjoy. You'll distrust yourself forever, always knowing that far more worthy souls were forever locked out in exile by their oppressors, those ruling professional mouths who lose nothing by employing you. I am an equal opportunity employee, the smallest minority in America, and your little game of color shuffle looks awfully white to me. Michael Savage, November 1977, Sierra Nevada Mountain, Mountains, in his small little booklet, The Death of the White Male. Michael Savage, a host like no other. As we mark the Independence Day holiday, we must acknowledge those who fought to defend it. Many of those soldiers were old white men who are now reviled by the vermin on the radical left. First, hear how the fourth estate has become the fifth column, and then a uh, more lighthearted piece on navigating mixed race and mixed religion families. I have an old saying that uh, I made up, which is that the uh, fourth estate has become the fifth column. It takes a little history to know what that means, and I can explain it to you, and I'll do it another time. 
What do they mean by the fourth estate? It was supposed to be the watchdog for the people. Do you believe that audience of at the Laughathon with Obama telling bad, stale jokes one after the other uh, was the, a representative of the fourth estate? No, they were the equivalent of Lenny Reifenstahl in Nazi Germany, who was a propagandist, a great uh, filmmaker, by the way. Uh, a Nazi propagandist, nevertheless, for Adolf Hitler. Now, I'm not saying they're Nazi propagandists. I'm telling you that they're a wholly owned subsidiary of the Obama administration. Every last one of them who had even a vestige of independence has been turned completely and absolutely and totally into nothing but a lapdog for the administration. So they're not the watchdog. So that's the fourth estate. We lose the fourth estate. Anything is possible. The government could fire on the people. The government could re release tanks onto the streets and say that they need to round up anybody with an automatic weapon when they're not automatic weapons. This government is capable of it. This government could get away with it because there is no fourth estate. They have become the fifth column. What is the fifth column? The fifth column is a reference to a Spanish uh, general who during the Spanish Civil War talked about a group of turncoats in the fifth column who had gone over to the enemy side. That's what he means by the fifth column. So when I say to you when the fourth estate is, our fourth estate has become the fifth column, I'm trying to explain to you that this, this incredible army of men and women with so much power is now just an appendage of the Obama administration, which is a very dangerous situation for the United States. That is how they get away with the greatest intelligence lapse in modern American history without one person being fired, not one person being called on the carpet. That's how they get away with it because there's no press. In my day, the headlines would have spun. Hot headlines. Hot headlines would have run across America. Hot headlines are the kind you don't see anymore, except perhaps on the Internet, on the Drudge Report, and in a few other places. There were no longer any hot headlines of that kind that dare to challenge this administration. And that's why I tell you it's very important to keep your eye on the ball. I tried to warn you what was coming in uh, my novel, and it is not a big infomercial. Take it any way you want. My novel, A Time for War, is about the real 5,000-pound gorilla that's in the background. And it's not the radical Islamists, my good friends. It's those who own our currency today. Yes, my friends, they're headquartered in Beijing and on Wall Street. Some uh, interesting things happened to me. I was washing my car. When a friend of mine came by to talk about various things, we started talking about families and vacations and reunions. So my friend Dan told me a story about his family reunions always went like this. You see, Dan is half Korean, half Irish. Half Korean, half Irish. He said, going to these reunion dinners were always uncomfortable. My mother is Korean and my dad's side of the family are all Irish, Catholics. He said, every time we go to visit the family, they would always speak extra loud and slow to my mother. I started to laugh, asking things like, uh, we are having roast beef and potatoes tonight. Is there anything we can make for you? And what do your people eat this time of year? Well, I started to laugh hysterically. He has such a good sense of humor, this friend of mine. So Dan said, looking back, these comments were very uncomfortable, but it happened every year like clockwork. Every year like clockwork because he had a Korean mother and an Irish father. When the Korean mother would come to the dinners that the family had who were mainly Irish, they would talk extra loud and slow and ask those inane pandering questions what do your people eat this time of year that kind of thing and it made me think of times in my own family where someone was set aside or almost looked down on for being a different race or even religion even though they were all part of the same family 
And then it made me think about this. This can't be that different from what goes on all over the country. Callers, give me a call and tell us your story. What have you gone through being a part of a mixed race or mixed religious family? Let's say you're all Christian and one of the family members is Jewish. How do they talk to the Jewish member of the family around the dinner table at holidays? Or let's reverse it. Your family is all Jewish except for one Christian. How do they talk to the Christian at dinner? Or let's, you know, just keep mixing and matching. Has this experience brought you closer together? Have you learned anything from your experiences? I mean, I think it's hysterical, by the way, this pandering to the uh, outsider. You want to comment on that for a little fun tonight? Let's go to Palm Coast, Florida. Michael, what's your, well, what's your ethnic mix story or your mixed ethnicity story? Hey, Michael, thank you for taking my call. Um, Well, I come from an Italian background. My father's born in Sicily, and uh, my mom's half Irish and half Italian. So when we would all get together for... uh, holidays, whatever, dinners, I have my Irish aunt. And any time she would speak to my Sicilian grandma, she would just add an A on the end of everything. So it would be, do you want a pancake? Do you want a pizza? <laughs> Anything had an A on the end of it. <laughs> why, why, would she, why would she do that? She thought that, you mean, she'd understand English better if it had an, a sound like it was Italian? Well, she spoke no English. So she thought her way of speaking Sicilian, I guess, was to put an A on the end of everything. (laughs) Oh, I see what you mean. In other words, but she continued to speak in English, but she just put an A on the English words. Yes, and she knew uh, the only word she probably knew in Italian was ciao. She might have put an A on the end of that if she could. It sounds like a funny relationship. I mean, there was no such, you know, the story I told was of my friend who's half Korean, half Irish, where they literally uh, sort of pandered to the mother in in reverse by saying to her, what can your people eat, that type of thing. But you didn't have that in, in your uh, family situation, right? Uh, no, nah, not, not well, we just say pasta every day. There was no choice. I mean, there was pasta. Well, since a potato has an, uh, an O on the end of it and pasta has an A on the end of it, how would your Irish relative express the word potato to your Sicilian uh, relative? potato <laughs> Probably. Probably potato potato <laughs> <laughs> well, if there was a Jewish relative, it would have been a potato latke, I guess. There you go. All right, Michael, thanks for being a good sport. 855-400-728. Look, we can go lighter, heavy tonight on the show. If you'd like to talk about, you know, these race stories are very interesting. We need to let some air out of that balloon. It's a little too full of air right now in America. And with so many intermarriages in this country, I think it's a very important topic to kind of put a little lightness on the subject. So if you'd like to do so, fine. Or if you want to go to the heavy the heavy stories of the week, in Boca, Florida, Tim, welcome to the Savage Nation. Go ahead, please. Yes, Dr. Savage, it's such a pleasure to talk to you. Um, I just wanted to let you know of a, a very memorable time in my life. And my, my, my grandmother uh, was dating a Jewish man for over 30 years. And uh, they were forbidden to marry because he was Jewish. And um, unfortunately, when he passed away, uh, my brother and I, both Christians, went to his, uh, what are they, it's not a wake, it's a shevitz. And, um, oh, oh, you mean where they're sitting shiva for 10 days uh, in his memory? Exactly. And they had a, quite a spread set up with food. Well, that sounds very Irish, the food part of it. 
Well, there was a lot of food there, and, and it was all different kinds of food, all Jewish food, and I didn't know. I, I ended up getting a big, giant plate of what I thought was the absolute best, best sweet and sour pork I ever had in my life. But what was it? My grandma, I see my grandmother sitting over in the corner, and I go over to console her, and she's like, how do you like the food? And I said, oh, it was great. I said, that was the best sweet and sour pork <laughs> I had in my life. Yeah. And she said, oh, sweetheart, these people are Jewish. They don't eat pork. I said, well, well, what was it? And she said, it was tongue. <laughs> I ate about three pounds of cow's tongue that day. My brother. Well, I, I happen to love tongue. It's very, very rich in cholesterol. I have it a few times a year. I eat it in a Basque restaurant. The Italians serve it. It's called La Lingua. There used to be uh, an, an Italian restaurant in North Beach that's long gone. Little Joe's. He's dead. But in the in the early days, there was a chef, a big Italian guy with a mustache, like from the old world. The place used to be packed. And if I went in and, and I'd sit at the counter and I'd order tongue, he'd always go like this. He pointed his tongue to the entire restaurant and he'd yell out, la lingua, la lingua. It was just a little thing. But that, those were the days here in the city when things were a little lighter. So your mixed religion story is one of pleasantry. There was no there was no hostility. The only difference here is that you, you, you're you said you're. Your grandfather couldn't marry your grandmother? Is that what it was? Oh, we called him our, our Uncle Joe. And 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 her his uh, his mother forbid on her deathbed forbid her him to marry my grandmother. So Okay, so the grandmother was Jewish and he was Christian, but they loved each other and lived together for thirty years. Well, he was Jewish, she was Christian, they loved each other and were together for many years, but never married due to his wife, his, his, his mom. Well, but they enjoyed each other, that's the main thing. Well, I appreciate that story, it's very touching, thank you very much. Joe, you're on the Savage Nation on the mixed religion, mixed race topic, I like that topic, Joe. Tell us your story. All right, I'm from Greenpoint, Brooklyn. Good. I'm a mixed marriage, West Side Story, Sicilian and Polish. And wow, that was a, that was an odd one. There were a lot of Sicilian and Irish marriages, weren't there? A lot of Sicilian Irish, but uh, my wife was smart enough to marry the Polish guy. <laughs> Stop it! Don't do that. There are a lot of Irish listeners. That was fast. Um, I can tell you. I can tell you from uh, from uh, one of my favorite authors' hometown and the area that he grew up in. You know who I'm talking about because I played him on the show. Uh, Henry Miller was from Greenpoint, wasn't he? I don't know, because uh, that sounded like a name that wasn't Irish, Italian, or Polish. No, but he was smart and a great writer. So how did that work out, Joe? Did they get along, or was there constant sparks flying? Let me tell you this. The woman, my mother-in-law, was the sweetest person in the world. And when the four kids would come into the house, she would have the meatballs already waiting for her, for them. And they would... Yep jumped onto the table and started eating all the meatballs. As far as I was concerned, I would be a dummy to have any kind of trouble because I would have my veal cutlet parmesan, I would have my spaghetti, and do you think I was going to say anything? Oh, no. Very good. No, the food is a very, very important binding agent in all cultures. In fact, uh, more and more people tell me the same story. You know, food from the point of view of uh, of anthropology. See, we only look upon food as a nutrient source. But I happen to know as a trained anthropologist that food carries more than mere nutrients. 
food carries entire cultures. And that's what people are drawn together by. It's not just the food and the calories and the protein and the vitamins. It's what the food signifies in terms of the cultural value, so to speak. And that's what you just expressed, Joe. Well, so-, so that's beautiful. That's a beautiful story. Thanks for the call. I don't know if you want to talk about it. I think it's a very interesting story because no one talks about it. I mean, what are you going to say about Mark Zuckerberg not Facebook paying no taxes? You expect honesty from the Obama administration? You expect honesty from a corporation that says pay your fair share of taxes when they don't? We're living in, a mo- in the most cynical, deceitful world in the history of the world. This country has never had more cynicism, never, and more deceit coming out of the government than it does right now. The Savage Nation. It's Savage On Demand. We all know that our nation is being put at risk by the military-industrial complex. Why don't you listen to real veterans on why war is not always the answer? Oh, if only people would listen. We're going to talk about the Vietnam War and how it's still affecting society to this minute. Welcome to the program. What triggered this is not only the fact that we seem to have learned nothing from our defeat in Vietnam and our defeat in Iraq, and our apparent withdrawal coming in Afghanistan, and the fact that the war drums are now beating for Syria, it seems that the military-industrial complex, or should I say the military-media-industrial complex, which lives on blood and war, is trying to drive us into yet another war. Are you a Vietnam combat veteran listening to the Savage Nation? Where are you politically? Does time heal all wounds? I believe the Vietnam War is affecting our nation to this day. For example, the Vietnam War changed the course of American history in the area of foreign affairs, social history. It even gave us a president in Obama who is politically closer to Ho Chi Minh than he is to the president of South Vietnam. As a social commentator, I, Michael Savage, see the effects of Vietnam everywhere I turn, in the media where the jerks still pretend they are anti-establishment while doing the Obama establishment's dirty work and covering it up. In society itself, where rampant drug use now permeates the entire society. In foreign policy, in war policy. In every way, I see the Vietnam War affecting this nation to this day. If you care to comment on my comments, I would especially like to hear from Vietnam combat veterans who listen to the Savage Nation who will call the show and tell us all where they are politically. Some of them may be liberals, for all I know. I have no idea who listens to the show. You may assume you know everything about the show and the listeners, but that would be quite presumptuous of you, wouldn't it? And what triggered this was this story. A Vietnam veteran, presumed dead, was reportedly found in a remote jungle 44 years later, according to a a documentary that I stumbled upon, a movie documentary, that is. In 1968, U.S. Army Sergeant John Hartley Robinson tumbled into the jungle, his helicopter shot down over Laos, in a top-secret mission during the Vietnam War. Now, Spielberg wrote the script. The Green Beret who was shot down would have come home a hero after a daring rescue. But in reality, something else happened. A new film by Emmy-winning documentarian Michael Jorgensen tells the story of this Alabama-born soldier lost at war. It's called Unclaimed. It purports to have found Mr. Robertson in a remote jungle. 
He was bent with age, the memory of his wife and children's names erased by the trauma of war and the torture that the vermin in Vietnam subjected him to. He no longer speaks English. The documentary follows Vietnam veteran Tom Founcy, who is real, who while on a humanitarian trip to uh, Southeast Asia in 2008, started hearing tales of an army brother forgotten by his own government and left to start a new life in Vietnam. Now, at first, the filmmaker says he set out to debunk these claims and expose the man as a poser. But the evidence seemed to suggest otherwise. Jorgensen told the Daily Mail in London, the MIA story was pretty unbelievable, pretty grandiose. Tom went to meet him and was very skeptical, grilling this guy up and down, trying to get him to break. Through a translator, the 76-year-old man tells this account, how the, v the North Vietnamese captured him after his helicopter crash, how they trapped him in a bamboo cage, and tortured him for years. I emphasize the word years in case you all think that Asia is a superior part of the world and the Asian people have a certain superior uh, nature to ours. They tortured him for years in a bamboo cage. Eventually, his captors released him, physically and mentally broken. They say a woman, a local woman, found him lost in the jungle, nursed him back to health, and eventually married him. He, uh, taking on his wife's late husband's identifying in information, this American soldier registered as a French Vietnamese citizen named Dan, Ta, Dan Tan Gak. Now, another surprising element of this rediscovery is how the American family reacted, meaning the family he left behind. Instead of submitting to DNA testing, his sister says she's happy to simply assume the man is her brother Robertson, while the Vietnamese woman, who's possibly his wife, inexplicably dropped out of participating in the, in the documentary Midway. But stories of missing soldiers rarely end with much closure, they write. And here's one that came close enough. While I play the trailer to this new documentary of this Alabama-born soldier lost at war, I'd like you to call on, on a several questions that I raised. One, are you a Vietnam combat veteran? Where are you politically? How do you feel about your country today? Do you believe time heals all wounds? I don't. I personally think the Vietnam War is affecting our nation to this very day. If you care to comment about any of these topics, including how the Vietnam War is affecting America to this day, 855-407-282. Let's begin with the documentary's trailer right now. The ghost of 1968, the faces of the people I have lost, have never left me. SOG was a super secret organization in South Vietnam. No IDs were carried, no dog tags. We were in Laos illegally. All SOG operations were under control of CIA, approved by the White House. There's bodies laying all around you. For over 40 years, you believed to be dead. Unsettling feeling. Nobody seemed to know what happened to them. All of our American POWs are on their way home. Tommy's made two O's. No one left behind. No one left unloved. When I first landed in 1968 in Vietnam, I didn't think I'd ever make it alive. I thought, how can anybody stay uh, one year in this place? And I ended up staying 27 months. They just forgot us like they forgot Johnny. It does seem a little crazy that my dad was in Vietnam and survived two years there to go right back. What is one life worth 
How much do I sacrifice for the soul of one human being? Someone I don't even know. A wise man once said that time heals all wounds. One thing I know for certain, that man never went to war. Amen. Welcome uh, to the Savage Nation. Vietnam veteran presumed dead reportedly found the remote jungle 44 years later. Shot down, Green Beret, helicopter, Vietnamese, put him in a cage, torture him for years, break him so he doesn't remember who he is. The sensitive Vietnamese that uh, Jane Fonda loves so much. The sensitive Vietnamese that Oliver Stone uh, can't get enough love for. The sensitive Vietnamese that the vermin in the media to this day still pretend to be uh, the victims of American aggression. Yes, the sensitive Vietnamese tortured him in a bamboo cage for years. Uh, broken, they threw him into the jungle physically and mentally broken. According to this documentary, he was taken in by a widowed Vietnamese woman who nursed him back to health and eventually married him. And this Vietnam, uh, this documentary apparently tries to prove that this is real. So I ask you again, I ask you again, are you a Vietnam combat veteran? Where are you politically today watching what's going on in this country? I believe the Vietnam War, not, not believe, I can with certainty tell you that the Vietnam War changed this country forever. I can tell you whether it's in academia or the media. You've got people who pretending they're still anti-war protesters who are now running every institution of the United States of America. They entered the institutions to change the institutions, and boy, have they changed the institutions. Do they realize what they have done? Do they have any idea what's about to befall them? Do they have any idea that Barack Hussein Obama is politically closer to Ho Chi Minh than to George Washington? 855-407-282. I'll begin by taking calls from the people we respect the most, who are the American combat veterans. Let's start with Lawrence in Utah. Lawrence, thanks for calling the Savage Nation. Go ahead, please. Dr. Savage, it's an honor. I was a sergeant in the Air Cavalry in Vietnam, Infantry Light Weapons. And, 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 and where, where, are you, where are you today politically, Lawrence? Uh, I'm extremely conservative. I'm active in local politics. Uh, somewhat of a libertarian, but uh, very, uh, very unhappy with the administration. To say Lawrence, that. do you do you believe that as I do you see the world as I see it in this sense? Do you believe that Obama is the actual enemy that we were fighting in Vietnam? The policies of Obama seem to be closer to that of Ho Chi Minh than to that of of uh, of uh, our nation. Absolutely. You know, uh, our academia and and a lot of our politicians are people who came out of the Vietnam War. A lot of these people. They stay in school forever so that they could avoid service, and they work their way up through the system, and now they're running the colleges and uh, a lot yes. of our politics. Right, and they think that they're still uh, getting even with society when they're wrecking society. All right, Lawrence, I'm sending you a copy of my thriller, A Time for War. Is there anyone else who actually fought in Vietnam? Oklahoma. You see, we're not getting too many calls from the Upper East Side of New York today. There aren't too many calls coming from Boca Raton. Not too many calls from uh, combat veterans calling from uh, uh, various and sundry liberal quarters of America. No, they're coming from the heartland of America, uh, places that you sneer at, those of you who understand what I'm talking about. Let's go to uh, Oklahoma, KFAQ. Craig, welcome to the Savage Nation. Go ahead, please. Uh, 
Michael, I'm still pissed off. I remember the, uh, I came back, uh, right, uh, uh, I left the day before the Tet Offensive, and uh, we flew back and uh, unloaded uh, uh, out in California, and uh, me and two other guys, we uh, we kept keeping, we kept count on how many noses we could break from uh, the people that were spitting on us. I've mm-hmm. gotten over that. It, 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 that has made me mad all the rest of my life. And then well, I, you, were tre- you were treated like dirt when you risked your life for the country, I understand. Yes. That, that, no, that's, that's a hell that no one can forget. But, Craig, politically, must, may I assume that you're also a conservative, or did you become one of the Vietnam veterans against the war? No, I did not. I'm a conservative. I, I'm a Republican, registered Republican, and uh, it's just terrible. There's a, and I'm you know I'm not young anymore I'm I'm sixty seven. No, you're a baby. What are you talking about? You're not young. What are you talking about? Yeah. You're just a kid yet, Craig. What do you mean you're not? You're not a baby. You're just a kid to me. Every day, I'm uh, I'm a contractor and I'm still uh, out uh, doing my thing. But I, it's only because I like it. I'm not going to. No, but politically, Craig, you know the world that you see through your eyes is a world that's no longer even respect uh, represented anywhere in this country. How do you see the country as you drive around, and I assume your truck, to go to your sites? What do you see in this country? Does it tell you that America has thrived, or is it on its demise? What do you see? Well, Michael, I've had this funny thing that I call, uh, you, I don't know if I can say this or not, but I'll just say it. Uh, I, I believe that we can solve the majority of the problems by enacting an ass tax. And an ass tax is if your ass is wider than your shoulders, then you should pay twice as much tax. <laughs> yeah, I, I, Oh, that's going to get me in a lot of trouble, Craig. So you think that everything breaks down to weight. You're just pulling my leg. I understand. Well, look, Craig, I really want to stay on a political level, although your sense of humor is very dry. It's as dry as some of the the oil wells in Oklahoma are these days. I'm sending you a copy of A Time for War. Again, priority goes to returning, I shouldn't say returning, returned Vietnam combat veterans who I'm asking where you are politically, but I want to open it up to a broader audience, which is now let's look at the what the effects the Vietnam War had on American history, domestic politics, cultural and social history. I believe everything that we are experiencing today, even the low point of that degenerate White House correspondence dinner, which was a low point in American history, by the way, you have no idea historically what that represented to have a president pretending to be a nightclub comedian in front of a sycophantic press. It is something that I had not seen since I stopped watching documentaries about dictatorships in the 1930s where the audience of so-called press persons laughed at every innuendo of the dictator, be he Mussolini, Stalin, or Hitler. You may not think that is what happened, but my friends, I assure you, as a student of history, what you saw happen in Washington was a new low in American political media history. I've had a long-running show. I mean, if it was a Broadway show, it would be one of the greatest hits of all time. Think about it. Think about what I'm saying to you. Many of you have listened to me for months, sometimes days. 
But some of you have listened to me for 18 years, off and on. I've moved around on some stations. I've changed my time slot. I've been up and down. You've been up and down with me. You know a lot about me and my family. It's like we're family in strange ways. We've bonded together. And i got to tell you something. Every once in a while, a show comes along. And I had a really bad day today. Some really bad things happened in my life. I wouldn't put it on the scale of one, on a scale of 10 as a 10. Bad stuff happened. Unmanageable small things that could drive me insane. Emotional problems that are harder to manage sometimes than, than a, than a, uh, well, than other things. Let's put it to you that way. But I have a show tonight that has made everything worth living for. Because when I touch a raw nerve with my audience and I get callers like I have sitting on the board, I could tell you, I could reach out to my call screen. There are nights I don't want to take too many calls because, you know, it's about the, the, the this, the sequester, cruise, this, Obama, Shmadama, McGain, 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 Republican, the Democrat. I can't do it. Boring. I can't take it anymore. But tonight, I could spend 15 hours on the radio. I'd like to take every call I have on that board. If I told you, if I could read you just what's up here, and I got to tell you another inside story. My call screener is a young man who grew up in a military family. He's thrilled tonight. He's thanking every veteran who's calling this show. He's thanking them for their service to the country. It's a population in America that you've written off. The old white guy? Well, don't write him off so fast. You haven't seen the last of them. Let me tell you that right now. You haven't seen the last of these men who've been spit upon by this illegitimate administration. I'll say it again. This illegitimate administration. This power-mad, illegitimate administration, which is closer to Ho Chi Minh than to George Washington. But it takes someone with a knowledge of history to understand the danger we are in. You're not going to get this from ABC, CBS, or NBC. I turned on Fox News, and there was one of the dumbest men in the history of American media who was literally fawning over Obama's performance. It's as though Rupert Murdoch took his puppet's out for dinner, and he told them, you better start conforming to this administration's demands as fast as possible. The tides are shifting. You better start saluting Obama. And that's what I saw happening on Fox News, not only today, but I've seen it happening for a long period of time, as you well know. It's not that I'm persona non grata on Fox. That's an old story. I have no sour grapes towards Fox. I am just telling you as a social commentator, something has shifted inside the Fox News channel. And they were the last vestige that we had in television, weren't they? So now we have no television outlet. So what do we have? We have the Internet. We have talk radio. This is the last vestige that I see of sort of a contact with the people of America. I don't know how else to put it. You know that you're castigated everywhere else in this country. You know that nobody wants to hear from you. You know that the media has counted you as dead already. They buried you. They've dug your graves. Oh, the old white men. All they did was run around their lawns with a, with a jar of Roundup in their old shorts and their knock knees and laughing at you. All of the smart guys. All of the smart young punks out there who don't have the guts to get married and raise their children. Laughing at the old white guys. Well, let me tell you something. You haven't seen the last of the old white guys. I can guarantee you. No, sir, not by a long shot. And you're going to hear from some of them tonight on the Savage Nation. So don't change the dial. Go and laugh if you want. Smoke a joint if you want. Drink your wine if you want. But you're going to hear from them tonight, maybe another night. And the topic is, I am, I am setting forth a, a, a supposition. 
I believe the Vietnam War is affecting our nation to this day. Not only I believe, any educated person can understand what I'm saying. Down from politics, cultural, social history, you name it. It even gave us a Barack Obama as president. He is a direct result of the anti-war movement. And here's the twist. Here he is, president, still acting like an oppressed man of color. He went before that crowd of sycophantic losers called the American, uh, the press, whatever, the White House press corps. And he said, well, I wish the Republicans would reach out to one minority in particular. <laughs> Me. Hello. He's still acting like the oppressed minority. At what point do you say enough is enough from this clown? At what point does America say enough with this clown's act? This power-mad clown. Enough already. We just had the worst terrorist incident on American soil since the Fort Hood massacre, since 9-11, and this clown got up and told jokes. Janet Napolitano has not been fired. Robert Mueller has not been fired. Every agency failed you. The Savage Nation. It's savage, uncut, unfiltered, and raw. Can America survive the invasion at our border? Why don't you listen and learn why this is one of the greatest threats to the future of this great nation? Talking about, uh, they say, 12 million illegal immigrants. It's more like 30 million. You know that. Since the government lies about everything, why should we accept it's 12 million? Where'd 12 million come from? It's all an estimate. So they've estimated that our budget's doing fine. Well, how'd that work out for you? They estimate the cost of um, a new tunnel will be uh, X billion dollars, and it's three times that. So I figure add three to the number of immigrants. is three, 36 million illegal immigrants. That's all. Now, if you grant them all amnesty, they'll bring their families over. What's that, 100 million people over five to ten years? It's an invasion. It's not immigration. Immigration is calculated. It's slow. It's legal. It's, uh, it's reasonable. I'm the son of an immigrant. Uh, I, yeah, I'm the son of an immigrant, first-generation American. They waited online. They didn't expect to run the country the first minute they got here. They didn't spit on the American flag. They taught me to learn English. They told me never to speak uh, the, the old language, etc. So now we have a whole different story, as you well know. We've talked about it. Now, individually, we know that there are wonderful people in all, uh, amongst all immigrant groups and miserable, horrendous people above all immigrant, in, in all immigrant groups. We know that, whether it be the, the criminals in any group, the gangsters in any group, and the saints in any group. We know within ourselves there's a criminal and a saint. We know that within every family there's a criminal and a saint or, or several, <laughs> several of the above. We under, that's not the issue. We're not talking about inherent differences between individual people. We're talking about the effect upon a mass of immigrants upon a nation. And so I bring it back to the core of my show, borders, language, culture. You have to ask yourself, can the country survive if the politicians have broken the border, refuse to defend the border, do not defend the language, instead they teach the immigrants to speak their own language, English as a second language, and they refuse to tell the immigrants there is a culture here that you must learn to be an American. I told you I have an, um, one of my producers is of an Asian, of Asian descent, and his mother fled North Korea on her own, fled over the snowy mountains, almost starved to death, and it took her 13 years to be an American citizen, and she proudly told her son, 
that she knew every American president going back to George Washington. She knew so much more than most of us know about this country. She had to learn these things to pass her citizenship test. Now, compare that with Obama today. Do you understand what I'm saying to you? If something is given to you that you stole, you steal it, and then they say, now it's yours, you don't respect that. You figure that it's a fool who gave it to you. You stole it from him, now he says it's yours? So now the, the, you figure he's a fool and a weakling, you'll take, what, you'll take whatever you can now. He's giving me this, I'll take that. Let's see, he gave me citizenship, what can I have next? Let's see, what can I have next? Well, the country itself. So what I'm telling, to, telling you tonight, you already know, because you're in the majority. The majority of the American people understand this intuitively, because all peoples understand what's going on intuitively. But as uh, I've said to you before, Malamé, the French poet, wrote, if I can remember my French from college, donnez plus clair la mot de la tribu. Pardon me for speaking French. It's bad French. Donnez plus clair la mot de la tribu, meaning to make more clear the words of the tribe. That's my job. I'm the poet, actually, sitting around the campfire trying to clarify your thoughts. In other words, if there's no place for a man like me, then there's no place for a man like me. But I know there's a place for a man like me because I made a place for a man like me by making more clear the words of the tribe for all these many years on the radio. Every day is a new beginning, 94 to 13. I'll have my, God, I hope I live that long, 2014, 94. I can't believe it, 20 years in radio in the year 2014. I hope I'll still be here, bigger than ever probably. If I'm here, it'll be bigger. If I'm not here, it won't be bigger. <laughs> doesn't matter, big or smaller. doesn't matter how big is big, how small is small. My books will stand or they won't stand. Either my, my, my message of borders, language, and culture will live or it won't live. Either you'll disappear as a nation or you'll stand up one day and say, I've had it. That's the end of it. I'm throwing my hat down. The politicians can go. You know where they're going to go. I've had enough of both of them. Both parties are garbage. And I've had enough of these liars and thieves. Maybe it will happen. Maybe there'll be a massive uprising against this lie, the big lie. And then we're talking about other things on the show today. I didn't mean only to talk about immigration. It's generally a, a frustrating topic because you don't know what to make of it. But we're being hammered on it on both sides now. And now we have the Republicans who are telling themselves in order to be, remain relevant and in order to survive, why they must become Democrat light. Actually, they may actually become Democrat heavy. Now they're saying we must bend over backwards for the hordes of illegal immigrants and welcome them. We should come out for virtually everything the Democrats are coming out for and still call ourselves uh, an alternative. Well, I don't see the alternative. If they're the same party with two different heads, it's called a hydra. I mean, if you just study biology, you'll understand what a hydra-headed monster is. And a hydra-headed monster, it is called a political system, said the fool. But, of course, it's not a fool speaking to you, is it? It's a man who knows exactly what's going on. In fact, the older I get, the wiser I get. And not only the wiser I get, but the more eloquent I get. And believe me, it's not simply facetiousness that is being spoken tonight on the Savage Nation, nor does it approach the sophistry of the politicians. That's number one. So things are going to change, actually, for the better in some ways, because there are midterm elections coming up. Midterm elections are coming up, and the Democrats are terrified that they're going to lose seats, as they should, by the way. Because a lot of the malarkey they've been throwing has come back, has been come back upon them, sticking to the Irish theme today. I like the word malarkey. I've always loved it. My father would never let me get away with anything. He would say to me if he was in a good mood, he says, "Stop throwing that malarkey." Would you? You know, he wouldn't let me fib. 
Did you do your homework? Well, I sounded like the defense expert in the Jody Arias case where the prosecutor says, I didn't ask you that. I asked you this. And he throw them a lock. Now that's not the question. It's yes or no. Did you do your homework? Finally, enough to answer my father. He's, well, get in your room and do your homework. Stop throwing that malarkey. So, so that's why I like the word malarkey. He wouldn't let me get away with very much, which is why I like talk radio, because it's a good... I have so many good things here that I want to get to. I can't get to them, because I'm jammed the line, I've jammed the lines out with the immigration story. You like what I've done tonight, or is it too highbrow? Shall I go lowbrow? Shall I just make sounds, guttural sounds on the radio? Shall I say... <laughs> How shall I use this gift called talk radio across America? I mean, am I allowed to occasionally, occasionally may I use my education? Occasionally it seeps out like the oil tar sands in North Dakota. Occasionally the the tar seeps out from the ground. I mean, there is an educated man underneath all of this. I may sound like a longshoreman to you, and believe me, I've met many longshoremen with no education who are brighter than most of the people around Obama, even though they went to Harvard. So that's not the point. The point is, once in a while, I have to use a few PhD words. Once in a while, I have to use my education. And I hope you you didn't find it offensive tonight, because I realize that education is rather offensive to most Americans. <laughs> that's another part of our culture. <laughs> that's a backhanded slap. Sorry, didn't mean to insult my audience. I do realize that. No, it's true. Sometimes people get offended by it. Well, thank you very much for listening to today's podcast. I hope you've enjoyed it and you'll learn something from it. We have about 400 other episodes available for you to listen to absolutely free. You can go back into our vast library of podcasts and listen to any one of them at any time. Again, thank you for your listenership. This is Michael Savage.